accepted as an atonement for our sin. Being raised from the dead for our justification to show your sacrifice was accepted. To show that you are the king, the true king. To show that you are now our high priest who is before the Father at his right hand interceding for us. That you are a returning king. That you are a faithful shepherd. Our eternal God. Whom we do delight in and long to delight in forever. Here frustrated by the remaining indwelling sin. But having a hope that one day even that will be forever removed. And our delight in the, the, the true experience of the songs we sing will, will be ours forever and forever. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Keep our hope grounded in the promises that you've given to us and our affections on the world to come. And keep us, in light of that, faithful to the task that you have for us until you bring about that great day. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, open your Bible, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We are, believe it or not, coming to our last message on the church of Laodicea. I think this is number eight, but we will finish it up this morning as we really come appropriately uh, to a message that belongs by itself, and that is the last statement of Christ that reminds us of the covenant promises of hope, the the reality that will be ours by persevering uh, to the end as overcomers. It is the ending word of the exalted Christ to his message to the churches, to the seven churches. And it is a a wonderful word, a wonderful promise uh, that we have to consider. It gives us, as all of Scripture gives us, and as we've mentioned many times, the, the substance of our hope. To be a believer in God, whether you go all the way back to Abel in the garden who first led the human race, or excuse me, Adam in the garden who led the human race into sin, but also was a recipient of the promise, uh, a hearer of the promise. Actually, God was speaking to Satan when he said that he would crush him on the head, but they knew, Adam and Eve, that that was a promise yet to come, and it established really the framework, the whole theme that would be worked out in the rest of Scripture until its completion and the consummation of the ages and ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. But since that day, God's people have always lived by hope. They have lived by faithfulness in His promises, in the guarantee that what He says He will do and what He says He will do, He can do because He is Lord. He is the sovereign Lord. And so that is what he gives us here is he gives us hope and he gives us a promise. There is no end to the reasons why we would lose hope in this world, not merely because of the weakness of our faith, but by living by the things that we see. We see a world that is under an increasing influence of evil and of sin. We see in our own nation and many things that are new to us, certainly not evil and destruction and the things that happen in the history of humanity, but in our own context, in our, in our own time, at our own moment in the progress of revelation, in the progress of God working out his plan, we see the increase of evil. We see evil celebrated. We see life that has no meaning, really, that can be taken and abused at a whim. We see the leaders who should be for the good of the people operating only out of a lust for power and for wealth. We see all manner of violence and disregard for authority and all of the things that God said would mark the, the a time in a society given over to sin. So we're, as Christians, aren't surprised, but we do need hope. We need hope. And that's what God gives to us in his word. So let me read for you just the last two verses of his message to Laodicea. And then we'll consider the hope that he gives us in these verses. He says in verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this then is the fifth point in the the simple outline and it is the covenant promise of hope. 
It is the covenant promise of hope. And of course, that has been the last point in the outline of all of the churches because that is where he ends in every case with a promise of hope, a promise of hope to those who trust in him and to those who know him and those who persevere. He says to the one who overcomes in this final promise, I will give him to sit with me on my throne as I sat As I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. This is a summary and comprehensive promise. And it gives hope to the overcomer. And who is the overcomer? The overcomer is the one who perseveres. Who perseveres to the end. Who holds on to their faith in Christ. Who is faithful to him no matter the consequences. This is the individual who perseveres to the end. Not loving their life even to death. In chapter 12, verse 11, it is that very commendation that is given to the overcomer. And they overcame him, that is the evil one. They overcame the the beast and all the influence of the final kingdom that is to come. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. And that is a true believer, as we noted. An overcomer is not a super believer. It's not a special class of believer. It's not a superhero believer, exalted believer. It is a believer. It is the one who is regenerate. It is the one who is indwelled by the Spirit. The one who has truly been granted the gift of saving faith and of repentance and of the knowledge of God in Christ. That is the overcomer. It is not a special class of Christian. It is every Christian is one who will persevere to the end. It is the very mark of being a Christian and being in Christ. And it is the mark of those who are in Christ because Christ himself has overcome for us. Let me just remind you of a couple of passages. He told his disciples on the eve of his Departure is betrayal and departure. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you have made peace, may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. And in me you will overcome the world. He is the one who overcame for us so that he might receive what is rightfully his, namely the rule over all of the nations and of the world, and to ultimately be the one who judges the world in truth and in righteousness and establishes his kingdom. So who is the overcomer? The overcomer is the one who's been born again, who shares life with Christ in the Spirit, and who has the faith to hold on to Christ no matter the things that would draw away. Let me again just remind you of one passage. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, I'm writing to you little children because you've been forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. That again is a Christian. Now the question then is, what does the the Christian overcome? What does the, what does the one here who's to receive this promise, what does he actually overcome? Well, quite simply, what Jesus has been addressing in all of the churches, what he has been calling the faithful to, they overcome their own sin, they overcome their own flesh, they overcome the world and all of its temptations, and they overcome the devil who would destroy God's people and pull them away. That has been the rallying cry of our opposition and what the believer is to overcome through much of the history of the church. The sin, sin, the devil, and the world with all of its lust. And while Christians stumble and fall, they don't ultimately succumb completely and total to their sin, totally to their sin. They overcome. They persevere to the end by continually looking to Christ. So these are the overcomers. It is a Christian. It is the one who perseveres to the end. And what is the promise to the one then who overcomes? Namely, a future reign. He says, to the one he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And this 
is the glory of glories. This is to say that those who belong to Christ, that we in this room who belong to Christ, and any Christian in any gathering and anywhere in the world who belong to Christ, will one day reign with Christ, will one day rule over all that he has inherited with him, under him, but with him as a part of his inheritance. We share in his victory, we share in his inheritance, which is everything that has been created and redeemed by him. Colossians, he puts it this way, as we begin to unfold what this means. In Colossians, he says this, we've read it before, let me just remind you of it. He says, just listen. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, verse 20, of one of Colossians, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This means the destruction of every, every evil power and force that stands against God's people and God's purposes. Every satanic and demonic influence and threat to God's people, which he says explicitly in verse 10 of chapter 2. In him, meaning in Christ, you have been made complete or, or full or whole is the idea there. And he is head over all rule and authority. All rule and authority. An incredible statement. He is head. He is ruler. He is the authority over every power that exists in all of creation. Now notice what he says here. He says, however, that this promise is for the future. For the overcomer, I will give him. It's a future tense. I will give him at some point yet to come about, but will come about in the future, to sit with me on my throne. And again, his throne here speaks then of his authority, and it is an authority that he shares with the Father. It is a sovereign glory and a sovereign authority that he, as the exalted Son, shares with the Father. And so he says, as I have sat down with my Father on his throne. It is an authority that he has as creator, rightful head, judge, and king, which is how he began this letter the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And we looked at that in a little bit of detail and noting that even as reflecting the language of the letter to Colossians, that that is the Christ as the one through whom all things came into being and for whom all things were created. So by divine right as son and by right as faithful Messiah and accomplisher of the divine will of God, he is exalted to God's throne to share in the sovereignty of God the Father over all that has been made. This shared glory and authority is demonstrated throughout Revelation. We won't go through every passage. But this effectively serves as a transition into this heavenly scene in chapter 4 where he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. There were heavenly beings around this throne worshiping him. It is a throne of majesty, a throne of holiness, a throne of authority. In between this throne and this heavenly scene, as we'll get to at some point, stood a lamb in the midst of this throne in chapter 5, verse 6, standing as if slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And he came and took out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. There is this glorious reality of the presence of the throne of God, the adorned by all of the heavenly beings and those who are there, and the Lamb and the Son sharing this throne, sharing in the worship and the glory of all of heaven and the authority of God. It is a shared authority that will also be the means of the execution of divine justice when he unleashes his wrath. In verse 16, we could... Trace this throughout, but this starts us off. They said to him, they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, those who are experiencing this beginning of the judgments of God, and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that is the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. There is this throne, this equal glory, this sovereignty between the Father and the exalted Son. However, Revelation speaks of another throne as well. 
In Revelation chapter 16, verse 10, he says it's referred to as the throne of the beast and his kingdom. The throne of the beast and his kingdom. To the church at Pergamum, you'll remember, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where the seed of Satan's authority and influence and power is, is the throne of Satan. There is a present authority of Satan in the world as well. And this is consistent with Satan's offer to Jesus, if you remember in Matthew chapter 4. He said, and he showed him, he here being Satan, the devil, he showed him, him being Christ, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to them, all of these things I will give to you. And it was within his right and his authority to give and make that an offer to Christ. It was not a false offer, it was a real offer that came with an untenable condition to fall down and worship him. And this is consistent with the repeated statements in the New Testament that the devil, the Satan, the serpent of old, is the god of this world. And in 1 John 5, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And there is a coming culmination of this power at the end of the ages. Let me just read this to you in Revelation chapter 13, the second part of verse 2. Well, let me read a verse beginning in 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, in this case being Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. That is of the devil. So there is this reality then of Christ sitting on the throne with the Father, of executing his sovereign will and majesty and in glory and in power of receiving the worship of all of the heavenly beings and the host of heaven. And there is another reality that there is a throne upon the earth and authority which belongs to the evil one that will execute that authority to destroy, to seek to destroy the work of God and of Christ. However, Jesus says here that I sat down with my father on his throne, that I sat down with my father on his throne. So the question is this Is Christ presently reigning? Is Christ presently reigning? Is he presently exercising his authority as king and as ruler over the nation? And we could ask a question with that How does this present position of Christ relate to his future reign and our reign with him? Well, is Christ presently reigning? The answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, he is presently sitting with the Father on his throne as sovereign Lord. By virtue of being the Son triumphant in his work as Messiah, through his atoning death, his death conquering resurrection, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father as high priest, which is where he is now. The New Testament makes clear that at the ascension of Jesus Christ, he went to sit with his father on the father's throne, as he says, or at his right hand, at his right hand. The right hand, of course, is a place of preeminence. We remember as uh, Tim has taken us so helpfully through Genesis and to see the, the life of Joseph and at the end of his life, which we covered not too long ago, where Joseph or uh, Joseph put his hand, or Isaac, excuse me, put his hand, or Jacob, I'm going to get there. <laughs> Jacob, help me out, Tim. This is your passage. Where Jacob put his hand, uh, he switched on the two sons of Joseph. And he put his right hand on the younger son. Why? Because he was giving him a place of preeminence. He was giving him a place of prominence. And that's what the right hand represented. It's a picture of power and of authority. It's the way that God's people express confidence in God's power working on their behalf. It speaks of kingly dominion of God over all of the nations and over all of the earth. Psalm 89 verse 25 says, I shall set this future king, this king of God, his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, which is to speak of his rule and his kingly dominion. It speaks of the power and the authority of Christ holding within his hand the seven churches, as we saw in chapter 1 in the vision. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He says in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the seven angels of the seven churches, and the lampstands, the seven, uh, and, the, and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. It is then to speak of a place of authority. It is a place of power. It is a place of honor. It is a place of dignity. It is a place of ruling. It is a place of absolutely authority over a dominion and over a reign. And Christ is said to be there with the Father. And this is a great encouragement to us. Because again, if you look out at the world, the last thing that seems to be true is that Christ is reigning. That he is king. Matter of fact, it would seem just the opposite. It would seem, and the world would judge by superficial judgment, that if we were to look at the world and the rise of evil and the compromise on the truth, even of the church itself, which Christ warned about, that he's not much of an effective king, if we were to judge by that. But how are we to understand this? How are we to understand the kingship and the reign of Christ, and our future reign with him. One of the most repeated, or the most repeated Old Testament passage in the New Testament is actually Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. As the most repeated passage in the New Testament, it is something that God by his Holy Spirit wants to emphasize to say, this is the reality I want you to understand. That this has come about and that this is true. Now, I have these written down so I didn't have to flip, but I'm just going to give you some of these passages so you can get an idea, and then I'm going to summarize them for us. It was what Jesus referred to when he was challenging the Pharisees about his identity as the Messiah and the Son, and remember they were questioning him in Matthew 22, and then he says, but I have a question for you. Who was David referring to when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? When Jesus was before the Sanhedrin being questioned about his identity as the Son of God in this mock and fake trial as they were ready to hand him over to the Romans to be crucified, he said this, as they said, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, if you said it, you said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's when the high priest tore his robes and said he blasphemed and they handed him over. It's what Jesus told his disciples post-resurrection in Mark chapter 16, 19. And he says this. So when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received, or it's what happened, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he declared this, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. The disciples, after they had declared their obedience to God above human authority, when they were brought before the Jewish leaders and told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to obey God, and we're not going to obey men. They added these words of Christ, that he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. When Stephen was being martyred and feeling the blows of the stones being thrown against him and against his head feeling the stones take his life from him, it says this in Acts chapter 7, 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. 
And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's what we're encouraged with in the certainty of God's saving love for his own. In Romans 8, 34, Who then is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And he follows that with, we're like sheep to be slaughtered all day long, but nothing he ends with can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is understanding this that is at the very heart of our growth and holiness. Colossians 3.1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It speaks of the divine glory of Christ, his son. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It speaks of his glory as exalted son above the angels. Hebrews 1.13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It shows his role as high priest. Hebrews 8.1, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. It speaks of his perfect sacrifice for his people. Hebrews 10, 12, but he, having, been offer, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It means he's the object of our hope, Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It means he's victorious Lord of all, 1 Peter 3, 22. Speaking of him who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. This is where he is. This is who he is. This is what he's done. When the risen Christ sat down with the Father on his throne, he took his position as sovereign and exalted Lord over all things. It is in that position that he is our perfect righteousness. He is our perfect high priest and intercessor. He is the surety of every promise of God in him. He is our hope of future victory. He is our strength and example and trial. And he is the object of our faith and heart of our holiness. That he is at the right hand of God. But let me mention just one other passage. That kind of sums all this up comprehensively. In Ephesians, he says this. And it's in the context of Paul playing that we would understand this more and more, that our eyes would be enlightened into the riches of the, herit- the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? In accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ Jesus, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all which is to say that in the power of God displayed in the resurrection it was a pointer as well to the sovereign power of God and authority of Christ who was raised from the dead to the position of absolute authority and over all uh, that is under his dominion, which is all of creation. He is the sovereign and unchallenged Lord. He has, as he said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. He is the one true sovereign to whom and before whom all things will be summed up for his glory and under his rule. Ephesians 10, 1.10. With a view to the administration, this is what was purposed in him, to the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. Now the reality of these things and the full execution and display of his Authority as the risen Lord is meant to be to us as the church an encouragement. An encouragement. 
that he is absolutely sovereign. Why would it need to be an encouragement, though? Because the other answer to that question is, is he reigning? And it is, the answer is, not completely yet in the execution of his reign, in the manifestation of his reign. He has inaugurated his reign. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He has defeated his enemies. He has utterly wiped out Satan's power. He has crushed him on the head, as it were, on the cross. But he has not yet consummated this reign. It is a future promise. It is a future promise. He mentions that in the letter to the Ephesians. Pulling out of the Jewish two-age apocalyptic literature, it comes from there is this age and there is the age to come. There is the age to come. He is ruler over both ages, but he exercises that rule differently in the two ages. How is he exercising this rule now? How is he presently displaying his reign? Primarily in this, his promise to Peter. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In the letter to the Colossians, that the Father, speaking, or speaking of the Father's power to believers to bring in the fruit of His Son's work, He says He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the authority of darkness. That means that right now there is an authority to darkness. There is a domain of darkness. There is a kingdom and a realm of the evil one. But God is absolutely sovereign over it. And when He rescues His own, He snatches them out of that kingdom. He snatches them out of the darkness and He puts them into the kingdom of His beloved Son where they are now. It is to say that he acts through the authority of the gospel, through the authority of the word, bringing in his elect and saving his own that he has given to the Son before the foundation of the world. He is limiting the activity of Satan to accomplish his will in the present. But notice in Psalm 110 and the other passages that he says this. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So how are we to understand this? The son has come as the Messiah. He has laid the foundation for his kingdom and he is at the right hand as sovereign Lord, but he is not yet exercising his sovereign rule over his enemies as he will. And yet, now it's time for the citizens of his kingdom. We are citizens of the king of kings, and yet we are put to death. But there's a time that's coming when that will no longer be the case. That will no longer be the case. And this is the substance of our hope and of our promise. Things will change. And just before he talks about the coming judgment on the world... Who is exalted in pride against him that he will bring low and says the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. He says many peoples will come. Well, he says now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. But that's certainly not now. Now there's blaspheming. Now there's a growing hatred in nations once friendly to the Christian message and now they're turning hostile to it. It becomes more and more a threat to the ruling powers it be. This isn't yet. There is an increase of evil in the church so that even to the, his son in the faith, Timothy, Paul warns that in the last days men will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, and on down the list he goes. It means that in the world for right now, lawlessness is going to increase. It's going to get worse, not better. Until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, 
He reminds us that already the mystery of lawlessness is at work until the one who restrains him is taken out of the way. And again, this will only increase. This will only increase. But Christ, in the midst of it, is building his church. He's building his church. So then when will this promise come true? So what, what is the substance of it? It is to say, yes, right now there is a, a cost to following Christ. If the world hates me, it's going to hate you. Guess what? You're going to be hated. Why? Because light exposes sin and darkness loves to cover over it. And when light exposes it, there's all kinds of hostility. That's what you're going to experience now. But there's going to be a time when that will change. And listen, even to the, the ones who came out of the tribulation, the one who came out of this, this time of particular judgment, even they are waiting for this day. Oh, Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When are you going to bring about justice? Because justice is not reigning right now. When are you going to bring about your glory? So he's ruling. He has inaugurated his king. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign. All things are ultimately subjected under his feet. But we're still awaiting a kingdom that's promised. But it is a glorious promise. Let me just remind you. Think of the world now. Think of everything going on in our culture. Think of what's the news. Think of the things that are paraded before your eyes every day. And then listen to this. This is the promise. We read it every Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Justice and righteousness here among men. Justice and righteousness for his people. Justice and righteousness where he is on the promised throne of David and over his kingdom. This is what's coming. There's so much to say, but listen to how Zechariah talks about it. This coming kingdom. In chapter 9, he says this. In chapter 9, verse 10. He says, he says, I will cut off the chariot after, after a prophecy about Christ entering in on the fowl of the colt. He gives two, this is how prophecy works. He gives the, a prophecy in its wholeness, but it's consisting in parts as it's fulfilled, as it works its way out in the progress of God's purposes in this world. He says he's going to come humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. That's that part. And then there's the future part that's yet to come. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That hasn't happened yet. There's not peace. His dominion is not exercised on the earth from sea to sea. It's not happening. It's going to come. And this is what is anticipated Ultimately, when there will be actual peace among the nations, actual peace within creation, an actual rejuvenated earth of flourishing under the rule of righteousness and justice. But it is to come. When will it come? Well, he says this, when we will sit with him on his throne. When will this come? When will we reign? When will we stop being persecuted? When will we know the blessing of the promises? When will truth and righteousness and justice be exalted to the glory of Christ and not hated among the nations? When will the war stop? When is this going to happen? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him and He sits on His glorious throne. That is a glorious throne that he will occupy here on earth when he comes and he returns from the right hand of the Father with the holy angels, with his saints in Revelation 19, and establishes his throne on the earth. 
It's the time when the fulfillment will come of his promise to the disciples. When he said this, when they were saying, we've left everything. What what will then there be for us? We're sacrificing everything, our lives, our comfort, everything we could be pursuing to follow you. And he says, truly I say to you, you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You will sit upon 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. You're going to be a part of this. I am going to return. I am going to sit on my throne. I am going to exercise my authority. I am going to bring righteousness and justice. I am going to rule over the nations and you will rule with me. He says it again. Saying that not only will the apostles who will be judging over the, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But there will be a judgment that all of the citizens of this kingdom will participate in. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just listen. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, that's the overcomer. If we persevere, if we keep to the end, we will also reign with him. We will also reign with him. It's really a mysterious and a glorious time as well. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that part of this reign is that we will even be judging angels. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Do you not know that you're going to have a position even over angels in this time to come? And there's a sense where we have this position as promised because Ephesians tells us as well that we have been seated with him in the heavenlies. But this promise is future. It's ours by position, as it is his by divine right and accomplishment, but it awaits a future to be fulfilled. When again is this going to be fulfilled? When is he going to come and sit on his glorious throne? When is he going to establish this kingdom? When we see when heavens are opened up and he returns on a white horse called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, He judges and wages war. Now the king is returning to his kingdom. Now the king is returning to establish what is his. Now the king of kings and the lord of lords is coming to take what belongs to him. And to get rid and remove out of his kingdom every rebel. And every threat to what is good and to what is righteous and to what is beautiful and to what is holy and to what is true. Right now, sin corrupts his kingdom, but he is a king who is returning to take it back. That is the promise. And then he says, his eyes were a flame of fire, his head many diadems, a name written on him which no one knows except himself, clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the word of God. And here in verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Why? To come with their king in his establishment of his kingdom to participate in his rule that he establishes. That's what he's doing. He now has been risen and ascended to sit with his father on his throne and he's coming to take a throne, a glorious throne, when he returns to exercise his rule over the nations. And we who belong to him will be with him in that. We will. That's not, that's not a, a distant theology. That's God saying this is reality. This is what will happen. This is what is being prepared. This is what has been established. And you are on that side. And then he says this in verse 20. Of course, we'll get into this in more detail down the road. That what's he going to do when he comes? He's going to lay hold of that dragon, the serpent of old. The one who was giving his power and authority before this time to a kingdom and to a beast. To rule and to hate and destroy his people. But he's going to lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, throw him into an abyss, shut it and seal it over him, so that he will not deceive the nations until a thousand years were completed. 
And then he'll be released for a short time to be destroyed forever. And verse 4, and I saw thrones. You will sit with me on my throne as I sat with my father on his throne. And then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It is the fulfillment as well of Israel's salvation. It's what he told them. We've looked at this in some in Romans chapter 11. Where he says this, now they're enemies for the sake of the gospel, but they are beloved from the standpoint of God's choice and for the sake of the fathers. And so a deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And what is going to come about when that happens? All the promises. Listen to what he said in verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure in their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? When Israel does receive this promise and they do come into this kingdom and it is commensurate with the return of Christ and sitting on his glorious throne, what a glorious day that will be. Right now, we don't see it. But that's why it's a promise of hope. He who overcomes, he who perseveres, he who has his faith firmly established in the one who is at the right hand of the Father, he who does not turn aside to the lust of the world, he who does not compromise and give up and turn away from Christ to save their soul from trouble here, but commit it to death forever if that's done. No, the one who overcomes The one who can look past this world and the rise of evil and look to the future and to the promise. Who can know the one who was raised from the dead by the power of God. Who is the one in the glory and the power of God will return to establish his kingdom. That is the hope of the church. That's our hope. That's why we don't lose heart. That's why we don't lose heart. That's why we're not dismayed and we're shocked at the world as it descends down into a spiral of greater and greater darkness. We hate it, yes. It grieves us, yes, but we're not dismayed, we're not surprised, and we're not looking anywhere outside of the sovereign purposes of God and his power to make it right. We do our part, we care, but that's not what's going to make it right. It will be made right when Christ returns and when we sit down with him on his throne that he establishes over all of the earth. And it's a reign that will continue forever and ever and occupy the saints in their future glory forever. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his slaves will serve him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. A a name of ownership and intimacy. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp. Nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever. And then he says this. The angel to him. These words are faithful and true. They're faithful and true. This is our assurance. So what is the encouragement? Is this. Things in the future and forever will be exactly the opposite of what they are now. Exactly the opposite. And we either believe that, we must believe that. We must meditate on that. We must hold on to that. There is absolutely nothing in this world that will provide security to hold on to. What we hold on to is Christ is king and he will take back his kingdom and we will be with him and we will reign with him and we will share in his inheritance indeed we are his inheritance we are the gift of the father to him we are the population of his kingdom we are the ones called out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and we will enjoy that kingdom forever 
things will not always be as they now appear. We see mounting hatred toward Christ and his word and his people. We see the exaltation of wickedness and evil and the hatred of righteousness and good. We see the rejection of God in creation. The rejection of God as the sole giver and ruler of life. The rejection of God as lawgiver and judge. But it will not remain this way. This is only temporary. It's only for a time. One day everything will be reversed and his glory will shine and his righteousness from shore to shore. Can you imagine? It's true. It's true. It's not a fairy tale. It's not wishful thinking. It's reality. It's also reality if anybody is not in that kingdom, as he warned, who will be spit out of his mouth. It's also a reality for those who are much more enamored with the glitter of this world and the pleasures that it has to offer and say the pleasures of Christ just don't appeal to me that much. Well, as we noted before, that's a choice we make. And those who are outside of the kingdom will not reign with him. Those who were only superficially attached to the church and not in truth will be outside of these glories. And who are these? These are the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderer, the immoral person, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake of fire with brimstone, which is the second death. But he offers offers to be a part of his kingdom. And we want to be on the reigning side. That is our desire to rule over creation. We want to be on the side of the victor. And in Christ we are. But outside of Christ, there's only the future expectation of judgment. But we who know him have this table as a reminder given by the sovereign Lord himself. He gave it to us. And why did he give it to us? He gave it to us for many reasons. One is to proclaim his death. But how long do we proclaim his death? Until he comes, right? Until he comes. And a coming king he is. And come he will. And we great anticipate that day with great joy. So as the men come forward to hand out the elements while I pray and then meditate on these great truths. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise which is certain. It's certain because the cross is empty and the grave is empty. It's certain because you were resurrected, our Lord Jesus, with power. It's certain because in the body that was laid in the grave, you rose glorious. You were seen by over 500 and many more. You walked for 40 days and then you were seen ascending back up to the right hand of the Father. The proof of that was the very presence of the Spirit that was poured out on that day and the reality that your church continues to be built. Your kingdom populated and assuring us that your kingdom will also be established. Keep our faith certain and sure. Keep our eyes on you who are seated at the right hand of God and strengthen and encourage us even as we come to this table now in these great and glorious truths. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.